Before we get started with today's episode of Bench with Bubba, let me tell you about one of our sponsors, Draft. If you love fantasy baseball, then you need to try our new favorite app called Draft. It's daily fantasy baseball, but not like the other guys. On Draft, you play live snake drafts with other people just like in your season-long league. Drafts last just for one night. Once you're done drafting, that's it. No trades, no waiver wire. Just set it and forget it. And the best part, you play for cold, hard cash and get paid out the next day. Drafts start from just $1, so there's a draft for everyone. Trust me, I love playing drafts. I play golf. I play NFL, basketball. You can play um, three. Uh, you can play head-to-head, three-man, six-man. There's, there's running leagues. You win one night. It keeps going for four, five, six nights. You can play a dream team. There's all kinds of great ways to play draft, and you can join me today. Just search draft in your app store or, or play right from your computer on draft.com. And when you enter promo code SD Sports. You got to enter the promo code SD Sports. You get a free entry into a real money baseball draft when you make your first deposit, but you have to use the promo code SD Sports. That's right. Playing a real money game for free just for using the promo code SD Sports when you make your first deposit. Just again, search draft in your app store or go to draft.com and enter the promo code SD Sports. Now to this week's edition of Benched with Bubba. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Bench with Bubba, episode 105. I have a special guest on the show tonight. I've had the pleasure of having a few drafts with him, uh, football and beverage-wise, and baseball, a little bit of everything. Um, he's a pitching guru, the mechanics of pitching, baseball in general. You can find his voice on Baseball Holics Anonymous. You can find him on Twitter at Doug underscore Thorburn. Doug, how are we doing, man? I'm doing really well. How are you doing, Brian? Good, good. It's uh it's fun to get to do this. I know we've been in talks a couple times about lining it up, so it's good to finally bang it out and uh, talk a little pitching tonight and maybe with a little fantasy twist to make everybody happy. <laughs> Absolutely. And when it comes to pitching, you know I'm always down to yammer about it. So bring it on. <laughs> yep, I am all about it. I want to start out before we get into actual players and everything. Let's talk uh, the kind of mechanics of pitching. I know you've talked about it on – and everybody, I've mentioned it many times on my show. Listen to Baseball Hawks Anonymous. It's very uh, simple. Just listen to it. It's got great stuff. And, and Doug always does a, um, a pitching breakdown. He picks a pitcher a week or his co-host picks a pitcher a week, and he breaks him down and, and does his thing there. So uh, this is this recent week he did Walker Bueller, and we'll talk about him later. But when you're looking at a pitcher, let's start with just like a young pitcher. When you're, you're scouting talent. Um, what are you looking for in like the proper mechanics where you think maybe this will limit injury and so on and so forth? Well, for me, it's, and it's funny because you're going to get a – you ask 100 different people – you're going to get a hundred different opinions about what specifics they like to see. And, and so many times it boils down to anecdotal evidence or what they did back in their playing days. And for me, it really boils down to the simplicity of being an athlete in order to be an athlete. A, you have to be balanced. That's true in every single stinking sport. You're supposed to just keep the head over the body, 
stay balanced throughout, whether you're hitting, pitching, you're an NFL quarterback, you're martial arts, you're golfing, you're surfing, whatever it is, balance is always key. And so that's something I look for with pitchers because so much of the coaching instruction now, it just kind of throws balance out the window, acts like it doesn't matter. It, for some reason, I, I don't know, in the name of angles or what have you. So that, so for me, that's a big one. And then the second thing I look for is power. And what I mean by power is a hip shoulder separation, or I call it torque, but it's that, that big twist that you'll see with a golfer as he winds up his swing or a hitter as he winds up his swing or a pitcher right before he fires that upper half, you know? And so I look for that combination. And there tends to be sort of a push-pull as in, as guys ramp up the power, they tend to lose some of their balance. They lose some stability. So ideally, I like to see a guy who's maximizing both. He's getting as much power as possible while maintaining stability, which is why I loved Jose Fernandez so much. He was, to me, Jose Fernandez was the future of pitching because mm-hmm. he, his, his power was unreal, such that being able to stabilize that was a feat of its own. And he had excellent balance incredible stability so for me it's it's really just power and balance and then having strong timing being able to line everything up and do it or being able to repeat the positioning and the timing of the delivery so those are the main things for me and everything else is really just a branch off of that it, it's funny you mentioned twist because I, I wrote down the word twist as you're talking about the balance part so and then you just mentioned kind of how it's a happy medium you know if they ramp up to go harder then they lose some of the balance. Do you see it where like a guy maybe twists a little more then he maybe falls off to a side or when you're talking balance, are you talking about on the finish of the pitch or throughout like the middle of the delivery type situation? I'm talking the whole thing. And really it's, uh, I look at it in two different ways because at release point, I, I call it posture, but it's really still balanced. It's just that release point is kind of an animal all its own. Uh, everything leading up to foot strikes, when that front foot, that lift leg comes back into contact with the ground, everything into that is, it's tough to maintain balance while having strong momentum, but ideally, that to me, that's the power component. And so I like to see that blend where someone's maximizing the power and momentum, but also remaining stable. But then after foot strike, you have a lot of guys who tend to invoke spine tilt. So they'll tilt their head to the, the glove side. And you, so you'll see this position where their, their spine almost looks like it's curved like a C and uh, they'll do it trying to get a higher release point. And so many guys do it. And for some of them, it's a functional strength issue. They just don't have the, the strength and conditioning necessary to withstand the rigors of, of pitching at the highest possible speeds. So that's the, that's the highest speed part of the motion because your, your arms accelerating. Uh, but you have other guys who do it, blatantly because they're trying to manipulate a higher arm slot and so for me i'm i'm always really honing in on that time period after foot strike but into release point to see if a guy is first off to see if he's tilting then to try to understand whether that tilt is because he's intentionally manipulating his release point or if it's a lack of uh, of stability and a, a lack of functional strength because that second one is something that can take longer to fix uh, whereas the mechanical thing it can be quick but the player has to want to do it and they don't always want to <laughs> yeah no that's the crazy thing is you get your rhythm and what's comfortable for you and what is comfortable for you and what is you know what's 
you should be doing are probably two different things half the time. So uh, it's definitely, especially the younger players. And that's why I wanted to ask you those guys, because we're seeing a lot of these younger kids just throwing just harder and harder and harder. And you think it's more their, more the torque, maybe some other factors that I don't know, but you, you focus on way more. And a lot of, a lot of people understand kind of the basics of what we're talking about. I just wanted to ask you so you can kind of dig in a little deeper and explain it to people. But when you're seeing all these kids now, it seems like it seems like more so kids than you know veterans getting these arm injuries. What factor of the mechanics is the issue more so, or and can it be changed with these guys? Well, number one, I think the velocity obsessed culture that we are currently in is driving some of the injuries because when you increase velocity, you're necessarily increasing the kinetic toll on the throwing arm. So the big thing is how much the arm has to go into maximum external rotation. So what that is, is the arm cocking phase where the arms, the the forearms laying back, like cocked up right before it actually uh, accelerates forward into release point. And what we've noticed is that these guys who throw crazy hard, they tend to have a ton of external rotation and that puts a lot of stress on the UCL. And, and that's just a natural part of throwing hard. That's part of why they throw hard is that they can actually they can get that extra bit of external rotation, but that is putting additional strain. So that is, that is certainly an issue. And then part of the injuries we're seeing now also, it drives me so nuts. And you've, if you've listened to, you've obviously listened to baseball yeah. hawks a lot. So it's something I, I talk about quite a bit, but I can't stand up players are put in these arbitrary buckets of, Oh, you're hundred pitches. You're a starter. Oh, yeah. you're 20 pitches. You're a reliever. I'm sorry, they're humans. Some of these guys, their optimal workload will be 60 pitches, or and maybe it's every three days. Maybe it'll be 85 pitches. Maybe it'll be 40 pitches. And being cognizant of that, and to me, that's a pitching coach's job, is to know your player well enough to know about what his normal workload should look like, but also to know when maybe he's off a bit, or maybe he's just gassed this day. Maybe he's really hungover. Who knows? Especially when yeah. you're dealing with relievers. Like There are so many different factors that go into it. And same thing with injuries. You hear all these supposed experts of pitching who claim that they can see one thing guys doing wrong and that's going to cause the injury. Well, I'm sorry. Injuries have a multitude of causes. You've got, you've got, like I said, the velocity ends up playing a role. Mechanics end up playing a role. Genetics end up playing a role. Workloads play a role. Like There are so many different factors. The, my favorite example of this is Jake Peavy. Because we did an analysis of Jake PV back, this is back in the day, like, I don't know, 06, 05, something like that, uh, for the National Pitching Association. We did a high-speed motion capture. And he had a big injury precursor that we noticed where his, we call it elbow drag, where the elbow lags behind the shoulder line. And we warned the Padres about this. And the, you know, there wasn't much the Padres could do. This is the way he threw, but we just let them know this is a potential risk. Well, PV never blew out with the Padres, but he did blow out with the White Sox. And when he did, it wasn't the UCL that popped. It was earlier in the kinetic chain. It was actually his lat. And that's become a big thing lately, actually. We're seeing all these, this rash of lat injuries. But when PV's happened, it was vicious. I don't know if you saw it, but it, you could see the, the thing detach and the ripple go up his back. It was terrible. But it's, it, it was the kind of thing where he had such amazing structural integrity of his elbow that there's absolutely no way we could have known that his structural integrity was that good, but that's why his UCL never popped. Instead, it was a lat muscle that popped beforehand because he was putting so much strain on it and he had that unreal structural integrity. But again, there is no test for that. There's no way to say, 
oh, well, this player has an abnormally strong ligament. We can go ahead and, and throw caution in the wind a little bit with them. But that's the thing with injuries. Is it's never a simple explanation, or rarely, I should say. I never said it ever, right? So rarely yeah. a simple explanation. But uh, everyone, as soon as someone gets hurt, you, you get all these guys coming out of the woodwork saying, ha-ha, I told you so, I knew it. As if they're rooting for the guy to get hurt. It's amazing. Yeah, no, that's horrible. Like, and it's so true because they're always all the guys. I told you he's going to hurt. We'll talk about Shohei Otani later. Everyone's like, I told you he should have had the surgery. Like, that, that was obvious, guys. But, um, <laughs> like, like, everybody, like, we've seen studies where it's not obvious, idiots. But um, <laughs> you mentioned the lat injuries, and that's crazy because those have come, you know, in the forefront almost worse than Tommy John this year. And I never even paid attention to the fact that it was basically due to the same type of motions, but that takes it over. Uh, you mentioned the pitch counts, and I laugh at that all the time. Like when we grew up watching baseball where Nolan Ryan would go out and throw like 140 pitches, he'd take pop some aspirin, and he'd go pitch four days later. Um, and then all these other guys are this workhorses. It was never an issue. Back in the old days, I know they didn't throw as hard. they pitch every three days, four-man rotations or whatever. It was never a problem. But now it's like the staple unless you have a, a special case, obviously. And Trevor Bauer is one of them, you know, Mad Bum and some others. I, I was actually watching the Dodgers recently with Kenta Maeda. They didn't do it as much as a pitch count. It was he's facing 21 batters. And that was a little different to me because then they weren't as focused on the pitch count as they were just the workload in general. Still kind of the same idea, but a different approach, which I can almost respect a little more. Um, what do you think is there the actual logic behind this or will it ever change basically? Cause it just doesn't make sense. You kind of said it already. It, it, all of a sudden we're in this culture where they have to regulate for some reason. Yeah, I, I think it's, and this is just me shooting from the hip and trying to guess why the culture is the way it is, but baseball is so traditional. And so it, it's so hard for teams to go outside the, the box of convention. And so I think teams just have a hard time putting individual rules for guys. So like you, you mentioned Nolan Ryan. Now you say if you start talking about injuries and how guys are hurt more nowadays and they might go ahead and say, well, guys are throwing out harder nowadays. Well, not Nolan so Ryan was the Ryan Express. Nolan. <laughs> yeah, Nolan, Nolan was a freak. You yep. know, Randy Johnson pitched forever and he threw crazy hard. And okay, I guess he was a freak too. I mean, LeVon Hernandez, no, he didn't throw that crazy hard, but he was known to be a workhorse. He could absolutely throw 140 pitches and not have anybody worry. And the problem I have now is that it used to be that we could identify those guys who could go longer, and nowadays we really can't. Even someone like Bauer, he's never pitched 180 180 innings in a season. So I'm not ready to label him a workhorse yet. Uh, He's been... You know, he's on pace this year to to exceed that uh, for the first time in his career, and we'll see if that if that happens. But it's just such a different expectation. And, yeah, there are certain guys that can handle that workload, and there are certain guys that can't. And there are also different ways to look at workload beyond just raw pitch count. I mean, earlier this season, Jacob DeGrom had a game where he threw, like, 45 pitches in the first inning, and then he was done. And a lot of people were up in arms about it and frustrated about it. I was applauding because yeah, that definitely. I I wish we could see that a lot more often. I'm sorry, a 45 pitch inning. It's kind of like, you know, let's say someone said, okay, uh, you can run the mile, or you can break up a mile into seven roughly equal parts and have nice little 10 minute breathers in between. What do you think is going to be easier? 
exactly. <laughs> where do you think you're going to be able to do better? So the expectation that someone's going to be able to, to pitch professionally for 45 pitches, basically be on the mound for 30, 40 minutes straight of pumping gas and think that's going to be the same as if he had spread that workload across three innings and an hour of work. You've got to be kidding me. And, and it, that's, that's the thing is like you said is, and that's what I wish more people would, would look at. That's kind of where I, I liked the Maeda approach a little better. It's more like, okay, this is the workload. This is what they did. Um, when a guy goes out there and throws, you know, seven, nine to 12 pitch innings, or he goes and throws three, 35 pitch innings in a row. Let's real, let's realistically think, okay, he still can't go five innings. Let's, let's be real, but he might be able to go the distance in the other game. Like there's two yeah. completely different factors. Like you're saying that people just don't wrap their heads around completely. Yeah. And, and it's the whole understanding of workloads and it's relationship to injury. And I think people are getting too focused on the workload itself. And it's funny how people how the general accepted workload or pitch count has hovered right around the hundred pitch mark. It's so bizarre to me because obviously players are very different, but also why would it be a hundred pitches? What, what, what's so special about a hundred pitches? Because it's triple digits because we have a, a number system that happens to have nice round numbers near a hundred. Like that's silly to me. I've, I, of all the staffs I've coached, I've never had a team where everyone had the same workload and were the same expectation. You know, I, I have had teams where everyone was expected to pitch just to take some of the stigma off of it to uh, to let teams know that that's part of the expectation. It also makes practices run really efficiently because you can do circuits with bullpens. But anyways, I, I just I see the way teams are used now and it's almost as if, well, everyone knows you can't let a guy throw 120 pitches and everyone knows that you have to uh, you have to structure your bullpen this way or, or have guys in certain defined roles or whatever it is. And I don't know, anytime a sentence starts with everyone knows, I just immediately start doubting it. Yeah. And, you know, I could sit here and talk to you about this all night. We talked about it for a while last time we were at the draft and what you mentioned, you know, you've coached staffs and it, it was more of a workload deal and everything. Explain to me this, if you have uh, an answer on it, which you will, um, College kids, they'll go 140, 150 pitches on a Friday night, and I know they pitch one start a week. That's the argument they have. But try to explain to me how that workload's different than what we're talking about with MLB players. It's not exactly. That's all I just wanted to say. <laughs> it, like, I see that. I see, I see that stuff. No, but no, but I, that, that's what I, I just wanted to hear. Like, unless I was completely missing something, because I see that stuff when you're like you're watching the College World Series or the, the semis and all that stuff. And, and you watch these kids just throw pitch after pitch after pitch, and you're thinking, this is supposed to be the top prospect coming out? I don't even know if I want to touch that arm right now. Like, that's terrifying to me from what we've seen in history. Maybe I'm totally wrong, but that just seems like a, a, a more of a red flag than some of the other situations we're talking about. It's pretty interesting to me. Absolutely. And the, the coach has incentive because of his legacy, and the team wants to win and sell tickets. And that's a, it's a huge business, a huge industry for those colleges. So they have reason to push these players who are going to be gone. You know, they're only at a university for three or four years anyways. So before, especially the, the good players are going to get drafted as juniors. So they're only going to be on the baseball team for three years. They don't have a lot of incentive to protect these guys. They're trying to get as much out of them as possible. Now, no college would say, Oh yeah, we don't care about injury. Hell no. Of course they're going to say all the right things and, and that they're trying to protect arms. But how many times I have seen, 
a player's development sacrificed in the name of winning some college game or winning some championship or worse off winning high school game. I mean, mm-hmm. I, there was a situation just uh, about a month ago where this is a, a high school player that I work with and their coach wanted him to do something he'd never done before. I basically wanted him to increase his workload at the very end of his longest season and he's a senior, so he he had he was potentially going to get drafted. He already had a commitment somewhere. Like he had all sorts of other people who were had vested interest in his future, and yet his high school coach was willing to throw caution to the wind just to you know maybe advance to the sectional finals. And that that was so silly to me because this is when it comes to high school, when it comes to college, when it comes to the minors, basically everything except MLB I look at as a developmental league. Yes. Wins and losses don't matter as long exactly. as the pitcher gets better. I'm 100% on board with that, and that's why I get flustered. Like, what are you guys doing right now? Uh, last thing we'll talk about here, and then we'll move on to some some players. We've seen a lot of guys go to more off-speed pitches, curveballs, sliders, whatever, and kind of gone away from the fastball, at least the ones that have shown a lot of success this year. And people are praising it, and I get both sides of the story. Is there a concern from a mechanical standpoint, from a possible injury standpoint, to these guys throwing these more off-speed pitches, the torque on the elbows and all that stuff? Or is that just, you know, if they're being controlled properly, the amount that they're increasing their, their workload of that pitch is going to affect them at all? It really depends on the way that they throw it. Okay. So, for example, breaking balls, that's the big one. Because we see it sometimes yeah. with off-speed. I'm not as worried about change-ups. And the rationale behind that – I don't want this to, to take too long, so I'll, I'll give, just give you the nuts and bolts. Take as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, when it comes to the breaking balls, you've got twister breaking balls, especially curve balls, and I call them twister because it's, it involves a twist of the wrist near release point where the, the thumb goes from the bottom of the baseball and rotates to the top. Um, when I was a kid, it was a, it was, a coach told me it was like throwing a Pringles can end over end. Um, I mm-hmm. had, other coaches say, you know, pulling down the shade and – all that yeah, kind of stuff. That one. Um, turn the doorknob, whatever it is. And I mean, you can put your thumb on your UCL and, and actually try rotating and you can feel that, that pain. Uh, and so that is a potential injury precursor. And so that is definitely something I don't want a guy throwing too often. I also don't like them functionally because a twister curve leaves the hand differently than a fastball. It leaves it on a different plane. It has a hump in it. It pops up out of the hand. And a good hitter can see that. It's essentially a tell. They know it's coming. They don't have to identify the pitch or find the eye of the curveball because they can tell out of hand. And it's the kind of thing that looks amazing in high school and it'll get low A hitters out. But by the time they hit the advanced minors, that kind of thing, it tends to get ripped. So when it comes to the a guy who's, who's pumping up his breaking ball usage, if he's throwing a twister curve, I don't like that at all. Now, if he's throwing a supinated curve, which is kind of like throwing a football spiral, or some people call it a karate chop curveball where the palm is facing inward. That is a biomechanically efficient. That's the way your arm is designed to throw. And it's, there's actually, we've done tests with the modus sleeve to get the, to find out what the stresses are on the UCL. And it's actually less stressful to throw a supinated curveball than it is a fastball because of the way you're holding the baseball. The full mass of the baseball is not actually being pushed forward by your hands, not being propelled by the elbow. And so it ends up having lower readings for the stress on the UCL. So again, it really depends on how the guy is throwing it. If he's throwing a football curve, then I'm cool with it. You want to increase 
the results, like like Lance McCullers. You want you can throw as many as he wants. I don't really have a problem with it. Uh, but when you talk about the guys who have that 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 twister curve that pops up out of the hand, yeah, I don't want him throwing more of that pitch, not at all. Okay, that's why I was wondering because Lance is one of the guys that you know always comes to mind. He throws like the, the World Series last year; it was ninety percent curveballs. It felt like at times. Yeah, and you I'm, threw th- I'm sitting, straight. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting there just in awe, going because I didn't know that part you mentioned about the the good kind and the bad kind. I'm just sit, in my head. I'm thinking, okay, I remember back in the day, curveballs, elbows, yes. And I'm just watching that, going, oh no, this kid is so good. I know you guys love him on the show. I love Lance McCullers. And I'm like, I know the World Series is a big deal, but. Don't make this be the end. Just don't do it now. Um, but yeah, so that that's really interesting stuff. And Doug, we could we might have to come on and do it all over again. But that was awesome stuff there. We take this brief break from Bench with Bubba to talk to you about RotoWare. It's one of the best quality shirts in the industry. When I mean industry, all the clothing industry, the fantasy sports industry, because people are rocking it, they're loving it. You're seeing it in a lot of big outlets now. The no other brand. Can compete with RotoWare in terms of quality. They're premium blend fabric, super soft, comfortable, athletic fit shirts. They specialize with a special, special printing process. The design is part of the shirt. Literally, it is dyed and bleached into the fabric. No thick ink. There's over 30 different designs right now. It's just crazy all the stuff they have coming out. And there's more and more stuff every time you turn your head. They have fantasy football, baseball, hockey, basketball, some really cool DFS ones. But everything's great. They have men's, women's, and kids. Check them all out. Go to rotoware.com, R-O-T-O-W-E-A-R.com. Check them out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at rotoware. But the cool part, guys, if you use the promo code DEGENS, D-E-G-E-N-S, you get 20% off your order. Again, promo code DEGENS, D-E-G-E-N-S. Check their site out. Check them Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. They're always giving away free shirts. And then when you go to purchase the ones you want for you, your loved ones, your friends, your family, whatever, use promo code DEGENS, D-E-G-E-N-S, for 20% off your order. Now back to this week's episode of Bench with Bubba. Let's do some player topics. You mentioned a couple guys you took some deeper dives in, so we want to talk about them, and then we can kind of quick hit on some others. But uh, Mad Bum is back for the Giants. He made a couple starts, and as a Giants fan, I was sitting there kind of skeptical watching, but I'm cautious because it's Mad Bum. Took a lot of time off, couldn't throw with his pinky messed up. Last two starts have looked a lot better. He's already into the third tonight in Colorado looking okay. What did you look you know, see kind of digging in on Madison? Well, with Bumgarner, there's a few things I look for. And full disclosure, I'm a big fan of what he brings to the table. I love his delivery. I love his ability to consistently repeat his delivery. If you go on Brooks Baseball, which is one of my favorite resources, they have game logs. And on the game logs, they'll show you the release point. And so it's just a cluster of dots. But it can tell you a lot about a guy. The tighter the cluster, the more... Uh, the more repetition he has, the better he, he can repeat his release point. And Bumgarner has one of the tightest clusters I've ever seen. He does it game in and game out. Now, that cluster wasn't quite as tight as I'd like to see it for a few games, but it wasn't really a concern in the same sense that, like, his velocity was down slightly. But it was down, like, 0.2, 0.3 miles an hour than his average from last year. So, again, not really concerned. Now, last year... Maybe not the best example because he had like five consecutive seasons of increasing strikeout rates. Um, he's someone who has increased his velocity throughout seasons. Even that one year where he threw like 260 innings or whatever the hell it was, I think it was 2014 or something like that. Uh, he still continued to throw harder and harder even into October. He, it's it's really interesting, and 
so that's one of the things I look for from him is just that the mechanics are honed. In fact, I had the chance. I live uh, in the Bay Area, and he had his final rehab start was with the San Jose Giants, the Class A affiliate. And so I had a chance to go check him out on his rehab start. And sure enough, his, his mechanics were pretty much honed. I mean, his timing wasn't perfect. Like I said, that cluster was a little bit a little bit bigger than, I, than he usually see, usually has, but it's still better than 95% of the pitchers out there. That velocity, yeah, is down a little bit. It's It's been down the last couple of years. But again, we're talking less than a full mile an hour over the last three years. It's, it's not really a major concern. And he's never been a high-velocity guy. He's always been 91, 92, is, is about where he sits. You know what I mean? So, so there was stuff-wise, I thought he was fine. What I found to be really interesting about him is the his ability to miss bats and and how the pitches have changed because it used to be something where his he could miss bats with everything. He's basically a a fastball cutter curveball guy. And all three pitches were missing bats more than ten percent of the time, like back in two thousand sixteen. But then in seventeen it really fell off and he basically has only been missing bats with his curveball. And this season, at least so far, it's been more about his cutter, I think. But uh, but he is starting to get he is starting to miss some bats with all three pitches now, which is good to see. And with him, he has to be pretty much honed with his location. And for Bumgarner, that means staying on the lower shelf of the strike zone, that lower third. And he was elevating a little bit in those first few starts. He also elevated in the rehab start I saw, but he got away with things. He was against a ball hitters, you know something that he can't get away with against major league hitters. But now he's consistently staying down in the zone more. Uh, so I think he his his mechanics, his stuff, his repertoire, everything's pretty much back to what we're used to seeing from Bumgarner. So I'm I'm encouraged and I'm looking forward to good things. I just hope he can reverse the uh, negative trend on that, that width percentage that he's had the last couple of years. But uh, in those last two games, he's been able to get some swings and misses. So good things. Yeah, he's been back up to about a K per inning, and the swinging strikes are much, much better because those first couple starts, it had me a little concerned. But it's like you said, he's never really – people always think of Bumgarner and they think he's an overpowering pitcher. He's really never been an overpowering guy. He's just a workhorse that locates, like you said, and gets swing and misses with his stuff when he's on. Um, oh, one thing with his uh, – what was that? Uh, I was just going to throw in, um, because you were talking about the breaking balls and like guys who throw too many – He's actually one of my favorite examples of that because this was probably four years ago or something. He was he was throwing something like 35-40% of his sec- his top secondary, which was being called a slider. And so everyone was yelling, oh, no, this guy's going to break. He's going to get hurt. That's the rule, right, the 30% rule. Guy throws more than 30% sliders, that's a no-no, and he's going to bust his elbow. And then Brooks Baseball reclassified the pitch from a slider to a cutter, nothing changed about the actual pitch. They just went back and reclassified it, and they, they called everything he'd ever thrown a cutter now instead of a slider, and for whatever reason. And all of a sudden, crickets. No one said a damn thing. And Magically, it's like, his elbow's fine. Yeah, it's the same damn pitch. It's the exact same <laughs> thing. He's throwing it the same way. Uh, the difference between a slider and a, and a cutter is like five degrees of separation. It's, it's such a small thing if done correctly, which – he throws it the spiral style, so um, like a spiral of football. So I'm fine with the way that he throws it. I just always found it so funny, and and to me, that's what's wrong with just looking at the numbers or following those blind rules 
without accounting for the context of a player. Because you end up with a bumgarner situation where all of a sudden he's fine because he's doing something differently. No, he's actually doing the exact same thing he's always done. They just reclassified it, you know? <laughs> Shocker. Um, you know, side note, you mentioned, you know, the, the slider to the cutter and people classified it differently. Um Joey Lacase, he's a guy that's got the slurve going on. People can't really decide if it's a slider or a curveball. It's called the slurve. Um, how does – I'm imagining it's the same problem, but I'll just ask the dumb question now. How does that compare to on his elbow compared to just a curveball or just a slider? It's purely semantics. Uh, slurve, okay. back in the day, it used to mean slow curve to certain people and certain thought. scouts, and now it's more slider curve. I, I tell you, back in the day, we would – because we worked with a lot of pro guys and they're just trying to get the attention of teams and scouts. And so we just tell them whatever was popular at the time. So if scouts were looking for curveballs, if that was a popular pitch and a guy threw something that was more, looked more like a slider, thrown a little high, harder, thrown with a little more of a, a tilty break to it, we just say, oh, it's a power curve, you know, and, and there, now you have a curveball and you get ridden up better. And then a few years later, they didn't want curves anymore. Everyone wanted a slider. And so what do we do? We just put the word power in front again and say, okay, if you, if you call it a curve, don't call it a power slider and they'll make their own interpretation of it. And they'll write you up that way. And you'll be looked at more favorably because that's what they want to see right now. It's to me, the whole differentiation between curveball slider, uh, cutter, all that kind of stuff. It depends on the, on the player. If the player throws three different breaking balls, then yeah, the hardest one with the least break is a cutter. The slowest one with the most break is a curve. The one in between is a slider. Cool. I'm fine with that. Uh, <laughs> but beyond that, unless they throw three of them, call it whatever the hell that you want. What, what was it? Major League Two, where they call it the Exterminator <laughs> and the Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You hit it, you can name it. He makes five new pitches in the offseason. Yeah. yeah. I call this the Eliminator. <laughs> I call this the Masturbator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, God, go on that tangent for a while. Um, good old Major League <laughs> 1 and 2. Um, let's talk about an Indian. Good segue here. Um, Trevor Bauer, he could, you could easily see him playing wild thing in Major League, but he's not because he's, he's in real life. What did you find out with Trevor Bauer? Because when I was referring to Workhorse earlier, he's going deep into games throwing 120-plus pitches a lot, and you're not seeing it with many guys this year. Now you mentioned 176 innings pitch. He's only gone over that once, so maybe he won't do that again. But what do you see with a guy like Trevor Bauer? He's already had 113 innings pitch this season. Uh, he does have a heavy workload. I do trust the Indians when it comes to that because there are a few organizations that really know their players well, and they know how to extract the most out of them, and the Indians are one of those teams. The Astros are one of those teams where I trust what they're doing with their staff. Like with McCullers, it threw me off to see 25 straight breaking balls. But it's like, you know what? The Astros know what they're doing. They develop their pitchers extraordinarily well. And I know that McCullers throws it in a non-dangerous way. So I'm going to be okay with it. Um, with Bauer and with Cleveland, I'm, I'm okay with it so far. And especially when you look at the fact that his velocity is actually up from where it has been. It's basically continued to increase throughout. So he's definitely not showing any signs of fatigue, at least yet. What I think is really fascinating about, about Bauer, and he's he's been a very interesting yet frustrating player to evaluate the last several years because every season he shows up with a totally different delivery. He's remade it. Um, his stuff changes every year. It's 
it's very hard to keep track <laughs> of what Bauer is. But I will say the changes that he's made for this year, it's the best I've ever seen him by far. And it's not even close. I, I'll start with his slider. So his slider was a pitch that just got ripped a couple of years ago. And it got ripped so hard that he just ditched it. He stopped throwing the slider through just a handful of them in 2017. He was basically done with it. Well, then he revamped it, remade it. He, uh, he actually does this thing where he puts thumbtacks in the baseball so he can see the spin while he's throwing it. Uh, this is before the Rapsodo stuff. He's been doing this for a while. And his, his goal was to get pitches that complement each other. Well, he found a spin axis on the slider that masks well with one of his other, whatever, 27 pitches that he throws. And that has gone to become by far his best pitch. It is his best strikeout pitch. No one's able to touch that thing. It's gone from being his biggest weakness to his biggest strength. And on top of that, like I said, his deliveries changes, his delivery changes every single season, but it's the best I've ever seen it. His he's, he always loses some balance during the stride phase. That's a, he's a, you know, he's like the poster boy for a drive line and that's a drive line thing is all their guys rear back and, and lean the head back towards second base uh, during the stride. So that's just something he does and not surprising, but post foot strike from foot strike into release point, he is the most stable I have ever seen him. His is a, you rarely see guys whose balance is better. The second half of delivery than the first half, you almost never see it. But that's the case with Bauer and his I use the word uh, vector every now and then to describe a guy's momentum. Like to what extent is he putting all of his kinetic energy on a straight line toward the target? And Bauer hasn't always been the most efficient guy. In fact, back in the day, he used to switch sides of the rubber based off the identity of the hitter. And so his efficiency was all over the place. But I see him now, and it's crazy efficient. His vector is right on line. And you can tell because after he releases the baseball, there's no wasted energy. He doesn't fall off to the side. He's not. You see it all the time where a guy's a pitcher's body will go to the glove side and the ball goes to the arm side. It's it, Talk about an inefficient vector. Well, with him, his body goes straight towards the target. And he, he slows down really easily, really efficiently. But to me, it's a stability angle and and how everything flows toward the target. So the combination of his new slider, that's his best pitch all of a sudden, and him having the best delivery that I've seen from him, it's incredibly efficient. It it makes a lot of sense why he's doing what he's doing, and it makes me even more okay with with the fact that his workload is a bit up because he's more stable than he's ever been. So I think he's a little bit better to, uh, to withstand it. That said, injuries take on many, many forms and have there's so many pieces of the injury equation that I can't possibly predict whether something will befall him at some point. But I tr- again, I, I fall back on I trust the Indians. Is he a top 10, top 15, top 20 pitcher for the rest of the season if he stays healthy? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, you know, let's put him – between top 15 and 18 and i say that totally arbitrarily i don't have a list in front of me like as if, as if there's certain guys that he fits between um i i actually think he's pretty similar to mccullers and i love mccullers yeah. and and i've been frustrated with bauer for years so th- that really says something it's it's 
at least for me, <laughs> I feel <Yeah>. something. <laughs> it's like yeah. this is the guy that I've been so frustrated with for so long, and he's finally putting it together. Whereas McCullers, I've liked since the day he was drafted, and I would consider them pretty close to each other right now. I can dig that. Um, let's talk Walker Bueller, stud young pitcher for the Dodgers, rehabbing at Rancho Cucamonga these days. Should be back real soon. Um, you found out some really interesting things when it comes to Walker Bueller. What are you uh, liking with this kid, and what kind? What do you? What do you think the ceiling is for a guy like Walker Bueller? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I can't believe what I discovered on, on Bueller. So, uh, Bueller was my assignment for the Baseball Hawks Anonymous podcast. He was my extract. And I didn't know that much about him going in. And I came out of the analysis just being blown away by this guy. Uh, it was funny is my, my opinion hadn't really formed uh, properly going into it because he had Tommy John surgery about two months after he was drafted. Yeah, he was drafted out of Vanderbilt. So I didn't really, he had a year and a half of, of basically being out of my consciousness. And then I just, I didn't really watch much of his minor league action. You know, he had 106 innings in the minors. So I just didn't know that much about him. But as I looked into it, I just became so stinking impressed with this guy. Uh, for me, it's, I mean, it, you can see the stats. They speak for themselves. He's a strikeout machine. And his walk rate this year is the best of his career so far, his professional career. Uh, he's walking like 2.1 batters per nine, so that's excellent. But for me, what really impressed me about this guy is his stuff and specifically how he mixes and matches. So he throws crazy hard. He averages like almost 97 miles an hour on his fastball. But he ha- he's one of those guys who has all three breaking balls. He has a cutter. He has a slider. He has a curve. The cutter goes like 90, 91. The slider is high 80s, like 87 or something like that. And the curve is, I think it's 81 miles an hour. And each one has progressively a different break as far as the curve is more vertical, the cutter is more horizontal, and the slider is more your traditional two-plane whatever. But I love how he uses them. He uses each one at about 11% clip, and he uses them equally no matter the count. He is just as likely to throw you a slider first pitch as he is the last pitch, or with two strikes. He he doesn't show any of those tendencies. You, You hear all the time about guys who are first pitch fastball and especially from a rookie who's just trying to like show off how hard he throws and he doesn't do that at all if anything actually the only thing that's really different as far as the different situations and counts he's in is on first pitch he likes to mix in two seamers more more often so if he is throwing a fastball it's probably gonna have a little wrinkle in it it's it's amazing and then he also has a change up on top of that so this is a guy who has a legitimate five-pitch repertoire, probably six if you differentiate the, fo- the fastballs. And he's mixing and matching them in every single count against lefties, against righties. He, he doesn't have tendencies. He doesn't have blatant tendencies. In fact, uh, I think his, his cutter, which has just this insane movement on it, he uses it most often when he's behind in the count. It should be a strikeout wow. pitch, and it's not. His fastball is a strikeout pitch. He doesn't even, in fact, he throws fewer fastballs on first pitch than he does overall, his overall percentage. Most guys, first pitch fastball is higher than everything else. So here he is as a rookie, and Walker Buehler is already utilizing his repertoire on a very advanced level and one that works really well for him. And and some scouts might say, hey, pitch is backwards, but, but 
the connotation with that is typically a, a soft tosser, a junk baller who kind of has to pitch backwards. Bueller throws 97. He doesn't have to pitch backwards. He just does. It's really impressive. And then uh, mechanically, he has some of the biggest torque I've ever seen. It's it's not a Roldis Chapman torque or hip shoulder separation. He has he has like I do a mechanics report card with a 2080 scouting scale, and a Roldis gets a 90 for torque. He breaks a scale. <laughs> it, he that doesn't even make sense. But Bueller and I and I very 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 rarely do this, and especially because I had to I had to increase my threshold and hip shoulder separation because gradually over the last 15 years that I've been doing this, uh, leagues have caught on have caught on and now. More and more guys are in, have a huge hip shoulder separation, which is part of why they're throwing so much harder. And and I actually did a personal audit of my report card, and that's what I found was that I was grading hip shoulder separation too high. So I had to recalibrate it and adjust for the times. You know, kind of like how a how a ninety three mile an hour fastball meant something fifteen years ago, and nowadays it's oh that's it. You know, it's, it, it was the same <laughs> thing so with Torque. And and with uh, Walker Bueller. He legitimately adjusted for modern times has 80 torque. It is crazy. I you take a freeze frame of him right before he fires trunk rotation, and it, it looks like his lower half is independent from his upper half. They look disconnected. It's crazy. I, I don't understand how he even physically does it. He's a physical freak to be able to get that kind of a short hip shoulder separation. His, his belt buckle is basically facing the plate. And the upper body has twisted back beyond going past his arm going past second base. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. Just out of curiosity on your your torque skill, what did a Hideo Nomo get? Good question. I didn't have I hadn't built the oh, mechanics okay. report card yet when I did that, but now I'm now I'm gonna now I'm gonna look. Because <laughs> <laughs> that that might break it even more. <laughs> I smell a homework assignment. <laughs> there you go. You can save it save it for your episode ninety eight. Um, <laughs> let's take a couple quick hitters on some other guys here. Uh, I want to mention Shohei Otani coming back from the DL later this week, most likely to hit for the rest of the year. As we know, his elbows got issues. Uh, what, what's your kind of thoughts on this as a guy that understands structural damage to elbows? And we already mentioned, you know, you got Tanaka and some other guys that they pitch through this, uh, David Price. But the kind of thing you see with guys that pitch through it, they're older. Tanaka or uh, Otani's so young still that you'd see more guys maybe elect to have the surgery. But, you know, every time you cut up and cut up in a body and have surgery somewhere, it's not a good result, regardless of how the actual surgery works out. So what would you kind of – how do you look at him not having a surgery and then, you know, just hitting until he can pitch again maybe next season? Well, if he was just a pitcher, yeah. as it is, I kind of understand why the pitchers want to under, do, try to put off surgery and going under the knife as much as possible because that's their livelihoods. That's – imagine that's the only thing that – or the, the main thing that has made them – made their career, made their livelihoods has been their throwing on. And all of a sudden someone's cutting into it and you don't know if you're going to come ever come back the same. And you know that even if you are going to come back the same, it's going to require working harder than you've ever worked in your entire life just to pick up a baseball again in 10 months or a year. And so, so I get that Uh, with the angels. They have such a unique situation with Otani not just because he's young and he does still have, you know, five, six years of team control, but because he can hit. And 
to be honest, I don't know enough about the platelet-rich plasma injection he, that he had and how that might help to shield him from exacerbating the injury while hitting, because that's my worry. I mean, obviously, he's getting DH the whole time, and he's, he's not going to throw, and it is a different motion, but uh, I... I mean, look at the the severity. I, I don't even know the, the severity of the tear. I assume it's more than a grade one um, because I, Tanaka has had a grade one forever. And Otani himself was diagnosed with a grade one back when he was brought to the States. And so if it's now worse, I assume it's, it's at least a grade two. And that just means that it's a, a longer rip or a bigger tear. And I don't know enough about how hitting will make that worse. You know, how, how many hitters elect to put off Tommy John and continue to hit all season? You know, nobody really does that. And so well, that, That's why it's weird because, like, Glaber Torres had Tommy John last year and took the time off to rehab and come back for this season. So that's why I'm confused on what he's doing. I get it if he can stay healthy. Like, I get everything you're saying. I agree with everything you're saying. I'm just wondering at his age what he's waiting for. Agreed. Agreed. I, it's an interesting twist, and it's it's something that the Angels get to do because of Otani's ability with the bat. And I think it's good for baseball. I certainly want to see him back on the field. Definitely. But uh, and actually, you know, you know, this is kind of a an unusual take, but for a guy like Otani who does have the ability with the bat and the arm, but obviously the arm was way more advanced. And the thing is that if you can throw, you can throw. But being able to hit means you have to adapt to facing the best pitchers on the planet. And his hitting was already behind. So this might be the best thing possible for his hitting development that he's now going to be forced to focus solely on hitting for a while in order to make him a true two-way player a couple years down the road. That said, I don't know enough about his specific situation with how bad the the strain is on his UCL and how much it could potentially be exacerbated by hitting to know whether or not it's actually worth it. I just, I do find it fascinating and, oh man, I, <laughs> I think that the angels are in a, a bit of a tough place, but at the very least it's not costing them much and they do have a long-term investment in them. So it's not like they're making short-sighted decisions just to try to win. Now they're considering all of this. So I, I have to assume they know more than I do and they wouldn't be subjecting him to in, injuring his throwing arm worse than it is now uh, knowingly. So hopefully that's the case and he'll be all right. But, uh, but I, I tend to be pessimistic about the PRPs and, you know, part of me just says, Hey, get the surgery, be done with it. But yeah. since they're doing the PRPs and they do want him to come back as a hitter for now, that means if he does undergo Tommy John, we're not seeing him until 2020 because he's not going to undergo it until a few months from now. Exactly. And that's the part that gets me. It's like, if you're going to have to have it, which he still might not, like you said, I don't know a ton about PRPs and everything either, but if he's going to have to have it, we're just going to lose him even longer. They're going to lose him even longer. Trout's window's getting shorter. You know, they, when they lost him, they were still kind of in the race. That's falling apart quickly. It's just a lot of interesting dynamics. One thing I've always thought about him is, you know, maybe – it's going to be a lingering issue. How about he comes back when he can actually throw again and he's a closer hits during the game closes. It's, you know, we don't see it every day, obviously, but it's another angle that with his talent level, it's an option that they have. 
Uh, imagine bringing him into pinch hit, and he then he stays into pitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that could be it, it. Just absolutely wild having something like that. So That'd be awesome. We'll have to see how that goes. Let's talk uh, Luis Castillo of the Cincinnati Reds, the guy that's let so many of us down that were so high on him going into the season. And it's like of late, he's been pitching better. I watch him. He reminds me of Justin Marja, where he's just in one inning too long. It even happened again tonight on Monday night. He, he only left one and run through six and two thirds, but he had six shutout going. And it's just like they kind of keep blemishing something that might build up his confidence. Just real quickly, are you seeing anything when you look at him that really concerns you? Or is this just more of a young kid that's got just a couple little issues that can be worked out? I think it's more of a case of last year he was peaking a bit. And this year he's something short of that peak. And what I mean by that is you look at, for example, his velocity. And I think he led the majors in average of velocity last year for starters. It was like 97.9 miles an hour or something. And this year it's like 96.2. He's dropped a tick and a half, which matters when everyone else is throwing crazy hard and all of a sudden you're not the hardest thrower anymore. He's also, he's a three-pitch guy, but he's, really diminish that third pitch, that third pitch being the slider. He's basically a fastball changeup guy these days. And the fastball's lost some velocity, but also so has the changeup. So everything's down, tick and a half. So hitters have a little bit of extra time. On top of that, Castillo, his command was an issue, a little bit of an issue before. It's a little bit more of an issue now. And he's a pitcher where, although he, he's actually a lot like Bueller in the case of I really like his torque, his shoulder separation. So when I see that, when I, when I see a guy who throws crazy hard, who has immense torque, it tells me that he's doing the right things mechanically to extract velocity. When I see a guy who throws crazy hard and doesn't have huge torque, that often means they're relying a lot on brute arm strength. And that's more of a concern for me on an injury scale. So, but, uh, the other similarity with Castillo and Bueller is they also have a lot of spine tilt. And that's one problem I've always had with Castillo. His actually starts early, even during the stride. He'll he'll start veering his head, veering off towards the glove side. And it's not that it's more pronounced this year, but it definitely hasn't gotten better. And that's something when I see it from a young player, it's not a uh, it doesn't seal the deal for me as far as it being a harbinger of doom or something. But it is something that I want to see a player get better with. Guys like uh, Clayton Kershaw and Felix Hernandez. They came up with horrible spine tilt and slowly got better year by year. Now, fast forward to today, and they're both just a little bit above average. Not amazing, but they where they've come from, they've increased and gotten better each season. So the fact that Castillo hasn't gotten better this season is a, is a little bit of a bummer. But overall, I think he exploded onto the scene last year and surprised a lot of people. And those folks really invested a lot on draft day today or drafted this year, and they're the ones that were probably disappointed at this point. He still absolutely has it in him. But, yeah, when, when your whole game is predicated on velocity and fastballs and change-ups and you lose a tick and a half of velocity and you don't have the, an increase in command to, to counterbalance, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, and that's why I just can't quit him. I, I see starts like tonight and other starts where he looks like he still has it. Uh, what would you do if you owned Luis Castillo? Uh, if I owned him, I wouldn't be partying with him, and I would target him overall. Although, you know what, what's tough about that is that I don't expect his velocity to rebound this season. And so, basically, let's say let's say he was worth, you know, let, let's call it a dollar on draft day, 
Obviously, he was worth a lot more than a dollar. But just for the sake of argument, let's say he was worth a dollar on draft day. In my mind now, he's probably worth, in actuality, about 75, 80 cents. If you can find a, uh, an owner who thinks he's worth 50 cents, then yeah, make that deal and extract the extra value. You know what I mean? Yeah, I um, but at the same time, if you're a current owner and he's been disappointing, I don't think he's suddenly going to get back to what he did last year. I Not unless he has an improvement in skills, which I wouldn't expect at this juncture. We're halfway through the season now. Um, so I would expect more of the 80% of what you invested in him on draft day because he was also pretty well hyped, so you probably didn't get a discount. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned Clayton Kershaw when you were talking about Luis Castillo and some others there. You know, the back problems, he's a big dude. Uh, is this something, you know, as a guy that's had back problems, they don't go away. Once you have them, you have them. How is he going to deal with this? We you know it's, he's got so many moving parts with his delivery. It seems like maybe they're correct moving parts, and I don't know that, but there seems like a lot of moving parts in his delivery. Is this going to be something he can fix, or is this going to be really, really bad for the next few years? Uh, he has an interesting delivery. He is he's really one of a kind. He's he's a unicorn, and his delivery is awesome because he can he learned how to repeat it. When he first came up, he couldn't repeat it at all. And that his crazy delivery in which he he, he kind of has three speeds. He lifts his leg up, brings the leg back down, if it almost touches the ground, and then he has momentum forward, which you never see. He also has a bit of an up-down. But the, and the thing is, it's, it's this really weird delivery. And it's funny, when I look at the top five pitchers in baseball, four of them have a bunch of stuff in common, and the other one is always Kershaw. <laughs> like whether it's a spine tilt thing, whether it's a momentum thing, whether it's a balance thing, he is always the exception to the rule. And I'm not willing to say that what he's doing is right or wrong. Uh, it's different than what I've come to appreciate. So I see it as something I need to learn from. However, it definitely puts extra strain on his back. The way that he delivers the baseball, it requires, especially on the low back, it puts a lot of strain on the low back. He has a, a a lot of the up-down, a lot of that herky-jerky forward mo- movement. And he does put a lot on his his lower back. So it's the fact that that's one of his injuries is not surprising. It's kind of like, uh, do you remember when he had hip inj- uh, hip issues a couple yeah. years ago? And so he's someone where his method of, of torque has changed. He used to be a hips and shoulders fired almost together. And some guys teach this and some guys utilize this where the hips almost pull the shoulders through. And my problem with that is that that's, that's really hard on the hips. That's the kind of thing that would exacerbate a hip injury. And sure enough, he had hip issues. And he that's something he has corrected over time, and now he doesn't do that anymore. I don't know that he would change his delivery to change the back thing. And like you said, that's not going away. Back issues flare up. They come back. And especially when his delivery puts extra stress on it. So it's definitely a concern of mine. It's a concern the rest of this year. It's a concern going forward unless he does something about it. Yeah, I see people already talking about next year he's still a top five pitcher for him. And I'm not even worried about this year as much because I don't even know. He might only throw another – maybe he goes 30 innings, maybe he goes 70. We don't know. But uh, you know, next year you'd assume he'd make it to the start of the season. And I, I want nothing to do with the guy. I didn't want anything to do with him this year. Is he kind of off your, your, your list already going into the next season? It's well, assuming value, of course. That's just it. Is is 
my gut feeling is that others will value him a lot higher than I do. And I love Kershaw, even though he does things that are different than what I look for in pitchers. I, I'm a big Kershaw guy. I've, I've got him in a couple of leagues. However, going into next year, as long as there are people who are not willing to see a huge discount, um, I'm not going to get him anywhere because someone else will take him. So it's uh, and there's other guys that I would just rather have. All right, last guy I want to ask you about, and we'll wrap this up is Zach Wheeler of the New York Mets. Still only 28 years old, once a Giants top top prospect, gets dealt in the Beltran deal, and he seems like he's slowly getting it together. He's not consistent by any means, but he puts together a handful of good starts, and he has a couple of rocky starts in there. Uh, a really good one a couple of days ago against Pittsburgh, seven innings, nowhere in seven Ks. It seems like he's figuring it out. His velocity looks great. Uh, what are you seeing with Zach Wheeler? Are, are you going to be a believer in him when it comes to fantasy, or is this kind of uh, a roller coaster ride you want nothing to do with? His velocity does look great. Uh, command has always been a bit of an issue, even more so than control. And by control, I mean walk rate and command. I mean actually hitting spots. And what I've seen so far is encouraging, but still not that encouraging. I, I feel like the prospect hype, unless it's been wiped completely clean and, and no one thinks about Carlos Beltran anymore when, when Wheeler's name is brought up. Uh, only only Giants fans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's because uh, yeah. to me, he's not that guy. Yeah, he, he's throwing that hard right now. He's throwing over 96 on average. But his secondaries he doesn't have command of, as near as I can tell. And so I'm just not really optimistic on him. Although, in general, I do like so many of the guys on the, the men's staff. I love DeGrom, you know. I, I am, I mean, I guess DeGrom's the, the easy case, the easy answer there. Uh, but I also like Steven Matz. I think Steven Matz is, is starting to come around. I think he is more interesting than Wheeler is right now just because – I was going to ask, do you think Matz is, is more of a legit thing right now? Right now, I trust him more. Uh, to me, Wheeler, the Ks aren't enough to make up for the unpredictability with his ratios. Whereas with Matz, uh, the Ks may, may not be where Wheeler's can be, but they're not going to be terrible. Meanwhile, I feel better about the ratios. And for me, that's, that's a big thing in fantasy with pitchers is I try to preserve my ratios while getting as many strikeouts as possible. And it, there are certain guys that are strikeout heavy but are going to murder your ratios, and I tend to stay away from those. And, you know, like I, I don't like having a roster full of, of Von Novas, but I do have a ton of rosters that have one of Von Nova. <laughs> Usually it's no, Von Nova. <laughs> <laughs> no that makes total sense uh doug this was awesome i could sit and talk to you for a long long time about more and more players it seems like every time we talk about one i think about three other guys to talk about so um <laughs> yeah, that was awesome awesome stuff uh thanks for joining me um yeah, thanks for having me on brian this is a ton of fun and yeah there's a bunch more pitching that i could talk about <laughs> yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have you on again sometime. Uh, you keep making the rounds. You, you've been on a lot of good podcasts that I know the buddies on there, and that's awesome stuff. And But most importantly, everybody, check him out on Baseball Holics Anonymous. It is a great, great podcast for fantasy, for real-life baseball, whatever you're into. If you like baseball, you're going to love this podcast. They do a lot of fun ways of talking about it. Um, I did want to salute you, and I will reach out to your co-host later. Um, 
your final segment this week on stats for scouting made me so happy because I have argued the BVP argument about people swear it's not a thing. <laughs> I says I, I say I'm not saying you have to believe stats for stats, but if you ever played the game of baseball, there is this thing called ownership. And that is what this shows you. And the way you guys described it was so much that, – that's one thing you guys do great compared to a lot of people is you guys vocally say things the right way to explain it to people. Or I just you know, turn into a curmudgeon and start arguing about it and tell people they're stupid. Um, you actually spell it out. It makes so much more sense. I'm so glad you guys made that argument there because I've been trying to preach that forever and everyone just goes, oh, no, you're a BVB guy, and those those that's just not true. So – Thanks a lot. That's, that's awesome. And that's it. one thing that's really fun. I've, I've known Sammy Reed for a long time and it, it, that kind of thing comes through naturally in our discussions because mm-hmm. I, I just feel like we can have an honest talk about that. We can talk about our experiences and we can explain things in ways that basically we're used to having to explain it in a way the other person can understand, which happens to be conducive to hopefully people listening will understand. And yeah, that, that segment about how you really can't detach the numbers part of the game and the on-field part of the game, and yet each side kind of tries to do it a lot without appreciating the constant intersection. And, you know, it's it's amazing how often, if there's not a stat for it or it's not a predictable stat based off the metrics we have, it's brushed away as something that doesn't exist. Like, look, you just don't know how to measure it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's plenty of examples of that. They're everywhere. And, it's, and the problem is when... People start saying they don't exist. Like if a stat head says that team chemistry doesn't exist because he doesn't know how to measure it and he doesn't know how to, to prove it or predict it, then then a, co- a coach will instantly lose – or that stat head will lose all credibility with a coach because the coach knows, of course, it exists. And so that ends up becoming this big divide when really can we just agree that the metrics for doing for measuring chemistry suck? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's why I, I thought it was great because, yes, there's a lot to be said about these stats, these new advanced stats, and they definitely need to be considered in the equation. But there's a whole other piece of the pie that you can't just ignore because the stat says one thing. And that's what I thought was great because that's the argument I always have with people that there's so much more than what just happens on a computer or something like that, which I'm not saying doesn't have its purpose, but you can't exclude everything else. So, yeah, and, and on the flip side, you've got you got managers and coaches who are doing these stupid things like stuffing players into 100-pitch buckets and 30-pitch buckets. Like, yeah. You know, it's like, well, it's not like the guys in the field are total geniuses that see everything. No, they, they miss a lot of the real obvious crap. And the thing is they miss the obvious crap that the stat heads see very clearly and very easily. But then the stat heads often miss some of the obvious crap that players and coaches see uh, see easily. I mean, I, yeah. I'll, tell, I'll just give one quick example of this. Um one of my jobs with the national with the national pitching association i saw all the little gadgets that came through and everyone was trying to show us the next great thing for evaluating players and i saw guys i saw uh, these ingenious contraptions and inventions and some of them would be so scientifically sound the problem is they would make a fundamental basic mistake that anyone who has ever played the game would never make almost always by the way this was a release point Everybody or all these guys would use 60 feet, six inches to measure release point to home plate. And I, that's not where no the ball has ever done that. Yeah. <laughs> it says it's softball. And, and you would, 
you know, if, if you want to see a university physicist jaw drop, yeah, you just tell him that. <laughs> oh man, tell Randy Johnson sixty feet six inches. Yeah. He's more like probably, probably like forty feet six inches. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's outstanding. But uh, Doug, again, awesome stuff. Everybody, check out Baseball Holics Anonymous. Doug is on Twitter at Doug underscore Thorburn. And man, this was honestly one of the funner ones I've done in a long time. Just talking, not even really stats or anything just talking baseball so that was a ton of ton of fun man i appreciate it well same thing over here man i've had a ton of fun thanks so much for having me on will do everybody this is bench with bubba episode 105 with doug thorburn we'll catch you guys later